Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is why we do Bloomberg Surveillance. It's the quality of the guests, and we do that in London. We do that in New York. Michael Spence with us yesterday. Richard Clarida with us from PIMCO uh, today, of course, for years of work at Columbia University, and now from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Boston, Athanasios Orphanides. He is a former ECB official, which barely describes his research contribution to economics and, of course, his timely work with his Cyprus during their crisis. Uh, Wonderful to have you with us, Professor. I want to um, get to Cyprus in a minute, but I want to talk about what I consider your word, toolbox. What's the toolbox that Mario Draghi has if he has the constraint of a German philosophy, a German economics, and the cacophony known as Italy? Well, the toolbox he should start with uh, is the Treaty of the European Union that gives the ECB supreme independence and one primary mandate, uh, which the ECB has been missing. The ECB has not been easing monetary policy sufficiently to reach inflation of uh, just under 2 percent, which is their objective, and uh, they can uh, use uh, the power of their balance sheet uh, to to get there. Uh, You mentioned Germany and political constraint. This is what the ECB should have been ignoring while they meet their mandate. But, Mr. Orfanidis, if, like the markets believe, Mario Draghi will extend QE today, what are the implications of tapering? Does it make it that much harder to then withdraw some of the support? Uh, frankly, uh, I think talk of uh, tapering was uh, premature in the, uh, in the euro area. Uh, let's, let's go back to the basics. Uh, Core inflation in the euro area has been at or below 1 percent for almost four years running, just just to understand uh, uh, how severe the undershoot of inflation is. Uh, Monetary policy should have been far more expansionary, and this is what uh, should have been done by expanding the balance sheet. The ECB started expanding its balance sheet way too late. They only started QE uh, in uh, in March of 2015, uh, and they did not do it at a pace that is sufficient to to make up for uh, for the previous misses. Right now, uh, in in my view, uh, they should actually uh, announce uh, that they will continue uh, the asset purchases throughout 2017. Uh, And frankly, they may need to do much more of that. The the fact that they've delayed uh, uh, initiating the QE program is what creates the difficulty they have right now, where they have to do much more than they would otherwise would have to. Right. So this is extremely significant. Mr. Orfanidas, when do you think tapering should start? If you think it was premature to talk about it two months ago, and if you believe that there's more QE coming, are we talking tapering in 2018, even 2019? 
Uh, frankly, 2018 would probably be a, be a reasonable guess right now, but only if they do the appropriate monetary policy uh, in coming months. The longer they have too tight conditions, then the longer we have inflation that is too low. And as long as inflation is too low, it's really premature to talk about tapering. If they were to really extend uh, the, the pace of asset purchases, in my view, they should have increased the, 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 the pace of, of, of asset purchases uh, uh, over the next uh, year. Then they could be talking. About, then they could be talking about tapering in 2018. If they keep under delivering, then uh, th that, that may have to come even later. In the last weeks or so, Professor, any number of times, I have cited Cyprus as an example of clearing markets, of facing crisis, of making tough decisions. You lived that with your Cyprus a few years back. What can Italy, as an example, learn from your experience and your leader's experience in Cyprus in clearing markets? What does Italy need to, to learn and do? Well, to tell you the truth, I hope that, uh, that uh, Cyprus is not uh, comparable to, to Italy. What we've seen in Cyprus in 2013 was uh, unnecessary distraction. I remember I was watching that from, uh, from Boston in, uh, in dismay. This was just a, 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 an example of the gratuitous distraction <clears throat> of the real economy that had been going on during the crisis. I hope we do not see something like right. that in, uh, in Italy. What we need in Italy is, uh, is, is well known. Uh, first of all, the Italian government should implement uh, uh, more structural reforms so that uh, medium-term growth can, uh, can rise. Right. Uh, and then second, we actually need a boost in aggregate demand, which is where the ECB comes in. By maintaining too tight monetary policy, nominal income growth in Italy is too low. Uh, this actually deteriorates the debt dynamics. Uh, this makes uh, firm <clears throat> profitability lower. This raises NPLs. So th the fact that we're talking about, say, a, a banking issue in Italy right now, well, this is policy-made. Uh, this isn't bad banks. Uh, the banking system in, in Italy was actually in very good shape at the beginning of the crisis. But if you have a five-year long recession, then you end up right. with, uh, with problems in the banks as well. Okay, let's do this. My question to Richard Clarida doesn't matter. Would you ask a question, please, of your colleague, Mr. Orfanides? Richard Clarida with Athanasios Orfanides. Athanasios, uh, you know, both of us are wonks, uh, and there's been some discussion uh, increased in recent years on the Fed and potentially other central banks uh, reprofiling inflation targeting to price level targeting. The ECB is not the only central bank that's fallen short. The Fed's fallen short of its inflation target for four uh, years. Uh, and so without getting into whether or not central banks should do that, do you think in the next five years we'll see a major central bank redefine inflation targeting as price level targeting? Uh, well, that's, that's, that's a very good question. If we are to see one, my bet would be on starting with the Bank of Canada. The Bank of Canada has a, uh, uh, has a history of actually considering uh, what is best practice over the years and trying to do this. Uh, when I'm thinking about the Federal Reserve, I think the Federal Reserve, even though it came late, it has managed to <coughs> achieve price stability and it has actually crossed over beyond right. full employment, which it has overdone it. So really, uh, in the case of the ECB, I would have been so happy if they could just 
do what their mandate Got has it. been over the last right. year, over the last several years before we start talking about the price level targeting. Well, I, I have to, to agree with you. If we had price level targeting, things would have been easier in the current uh, okay. context. I need to go to both of you. This is crucial. Professor Orfanides, John B. Taylor's name has been vetted to uh, after we move on from Yellen, if we have a Trump administration, John Taylor with a more rules-based theme than discretion, is that an appropriate stance of the U.S. Federal Reserve System? Uh, I, in my view, John Taylor is an excellent candidate for the, uh, for the Federal uh, Reserve. I think we do need to hold central banks accountable to their mandate. Same thing I've been saying about the ECB, I could say about the Fed. The Fed has done a better job than the ECB in the last several years. Still, uh, being more systematic and accountable would be an improvement uh, for the next uh, uh, 10, 10, 20 years. Uh, Anastasios Orfanides, how do you view or how would you view, were you still an ECB board member, the referendum in Italy? Does it push and press Mario Draghi to do more or would you still say that he needs to put QE even if we didn't have that referendum giving uh, Renzi 60 percent of no votes? Uh, well, listen, uh, the rise of populism is a concern uh, in uh, the euro area. But uh, what's the best way to fight populism? Deliver growth. So, uh, frankly, uh, I go back to my basic recipe. If, uh, if the ECB had been doing its job, growth would have been faster in the euro area. That would have been the best defense against the rise of populism. I do worry about political factors. We have elections coming up uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Europe. We have the Netherlands. We have France. We have, we have Germany. We see populism anywhere. Frankly, the establishment recipe is not working. Uh, we actually do need to deliver more growth uh, uh, with easier policy. And this is, uh, we've been talking about the ECB. I have to say, and, and here I should give praise to the European Commission, last month for the first time in their history, they actually took a stance of, on fiscal policy for the euro area as a whole and acknowledge that fiscal policy is too tight as well. Right now, Athanasios Orfanides with us from Boston. He is with MIT and with Columbia and PIMCO, Richard Clareda. Professor Clareda, let me start with you. Bring up the dots right now. And basically, the vigilantes and Cherry Yellen are finally on the same page. Is that the correct statement? <laughs> you know, that's why I love this show, because you nailed it. For the last three years, the dots have been detached yeah. from the markets, and the dots have been doing all the moving the down. The red line's coming up. In, in the last... Five weeks, we've actually had market pricing move up towards the dots. So yeah. it actually can go both ways. Okay, within that, there's the dots. Uh, Professor Orfanides, and I mean this with great respect for your research at the Fed years ago, does your toolbox include the dots? Uh, no, no, it did not. Uh, and, and as a matter of fact, uh, I, uh, I don't think that, uh, that having the dots out there is a good idea. Uh, it, uh, it creates this, uh, this disconnect between markets and the FOMC. I would much rather that the Fed says we're going to do our job and deliver price stability and full employment without trying to guess what the, the Fed funds rate is going to be three years out. All right. And Mr. Rafanidis, I'm here in London and actually the MPC is very different to what the Fed used to be like. And a lot of people are saying, well, look, the Fed is now trying to be more like MPC. You have different views. Uh, they argue not openly, but uh, you hear very different things. Is it more confusing for a central bank to be transparent or not? Uh, well, I think there are, there are limits to how useful transparency can be. And in the case of the Fed, uh, I think that those limits have been crossed. Uh, the dots were a very useful device to have during the crisis when the uh, Fed was trying to communicate that it would keep interest rates uh, 
uh, low for much longer than, than markets uh, uh, thought at the time. It was a useful tool. But frankly, when you are in the business of, of providing guesses for things you don't know about, like Fed funds three years out, uh, this is where you cross the limits uh, of transparency. And uh, you end up uh, risking misinforming uh, investors rather than uh, providing uh, uh, useful information. Do you agree with that, Richard? Again, I, I, you know, on the basis of it, it was basically to give the market a glimpse of how people were thinking, even if they were wrong. Well, there are a lot of problems with the dots. As I've said, I think on your show, you know, the dots are a very precise answer to an uninteresting question. That being said, I think there, there, are, there, are, there is some information there. And if I were doing it, I would, I would not get rid of the dots. I would, I would refine uh, and, and improve them. But I agree. They've created as many headaches as they've solved in the last yeah. couple of years. Uh, uh, let me rip up the script here, and I think this is important. Mr. Bullard out of St. Louis yeah. is an original guy yeah. in part of his latest theory, and he will say this is a small, non-vetted paper. Uh, you know, I'm dealing here with heavyweights, Claret and Orphanides yeah. and Bullard. I don't want to get Mr. Bullard upset at me, but he talks about don't move until there's a regime change. Is James Bullard getting his regime change yeah, right so, now? So, well, it, that, that's to be determined. I'm only weigh in on that. It, Jim is very thoughtful, and the, and the basic point he's making is one I have some sympathy with, which is you need to think of a rules-based policy as a guidepost. Um, and I've called it a forward-looking Taylor rule. And essentially what he's saying is that the problem right now is it's very hard to look into the future right. because we can either be stuck in a low interest rate equilibrium, in which case we're never going to hike more than once or twice, or we go back to a better equilibrium we'll be hiking yeah. a lot. Since I don't know, I'm not going to give a forecast. Okay, this, is, on this is critical. Professor Orfanides, if it's an ex-ante, we're out front fed. Or it's an ex post, we gotta wait, wait, wait till after the fact fed. Which is it, given Professor, uh, Dr. Bullard's great interest in a regime change before you act? Are we at that point? Well, I, I wouldn't put so much emphasis on the regime uh, change per se as in what Rich said, which is uh, we really don't know where the Fed funds rate should be going. We have, we have too, mu too much uncertainty in too many, uh, uh, many uh, matters. Uh, uh, there has been the discussion on what is the equilibrium real interest rate for the past several years. This is one of the reasons why you really should not think that you can tell uh, a priori what the Fed funds rate should be so, so much way out. The way to do this uh, uh, is really to, to look at what is the distribution of risks uh, for inflation and for economic activity and make sure you're guiding policies so that, uh, so that risks are balanced going forward. This is why, uh, in my view, for example, the Fed should, should have been acting much faster with the unemployment rate uh, going so low and, and now crossing uh, reasonable estimates of the full employment. Uh, they should have been already moving up. You don't need to know what the Fed's front rate is going to be three years out in order to say, hey, you know, we actually need somewhat tighter monetary policy uh, today. Right, because you just need to look at the data, Anathasios. Is that is you that look the at, point? You look, at the, saying, you look right? at the data the and how the data. You look at the data and how the data is influencing uh, the, your 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 forecasts uh, and the risks to the forecasts uh, a year or two out. That's that's all you need to do. Very good. Thank you so much, Anthonius Orfanides from Massachusetts Institute of Technology. bring in Abby Joseph Cohen now. She is, as I said, Senior Investment Strategist at Goldman Sachs, President of the Global Markets Institute. Great to have you with us. Uh, thank you so much. Happy to participate. 
tell us a bit about the, the, the interplay here between U.S. equities and what's going on in, in Frankfurt today. Uh, how are investors here in the U.S. watching what's happening uh, with the ECB? Well, clearly there's always a tension when there's a decision to be made by a major central bank. But let's step away from that for a moment. With all of this discussion about monetary policy, I think when the history is written of the last several years, the real story will be the absence of fiscal policy. We see enormous pressure on central banks, including the ECB and the Fed, uh, to provide as much stimulus as they can through the use of monetary policy, including some new tools. Uh, that they've created uh, and, and put in their toolbox. Uh, on the other hand, I think when we look at Europe in particular, what we see is that uh, they are facing a number of other structural issues. There has been uh, very little in the way of fiscal policy because of the Maastricht Accord. Uh, they've been trying to keep uh, their fiscal uh, deficits as low as, as they can. Uh, but there are also the structural problems in terms of slow labor force growth uh, and also uh, um, educational attainment, which is not keeping up with the sort of jobs that are being created. Now, since the, the election here in the U.S., the conversation has centered squarely on the prospects for uh, more fiscal stimulus here uh, in the U.S., uh, tax reform, uh, changes to the tax policy uh, as well. To what degree do you think Europe is, is watching that? You mentioned the absence of, of fiscal policy in Europe. Uh, how closely are policymakers they're paying attention to what plays out here in the U.S. over the next, uh, let's say, six to 12 months? Well, like everyone else, they're paying a great deal of attention and wondering which way policy will actually settle. Um, you know, there were a lot of discussions during the campaign, but some of the specifics um, not only are not yet known, but they may be at odds with what Republicans in the House and Senate uh, might like uh, to, to move forward on. So uh, what do we think? What do we believe will happen? Yes, I think everyone uh, in the financial markets. Well, let me not make that broad <laughs> statement. Almost everyone in the financial markets is assuming some form of fiscal stimulus. Uh, when we look at corporate tax reform, what we do know is that during the Obama administration, there has been support on the Democratic side of the aisle for corporate tax reform. Some of the proposals, not all that different in context uh, than the Republican proposals, but nothing happened uh, during uh, Mr. Obama's terms of office, in large part because the Democrats didn't want to separate corporate tax reform from individual tax reform. Um, if we can move forward uh, now, on the corporate tax reform, we are expecting to see a reduction in what's called the statutory tax rate, but that happens through the elimination of other deductions and credits and so on. Um, and so what we'll be looking for is the effective tax rate. The effective tax rate for the S&P 500 is now below 30 percent. It's not the, the 38 or 39 percent that so many people uh, speak about. Uh, the other thing that many people are focused on, of course, is repatriation of the money uh, that is sitting outside the United States. Uh, these are the results of profits earned by U.S. companies outside the United States where the tax rates, the statutory rates are lower, and they didn't want to get hit by the double whammy of bringing these back, repatriating these funds at a higher rate. I think there'll be a lot of discussion about repatriation, how this gets done. Even within the Republican Party, there seem to be two or three separate proposals. One of the things that we see happening for investors mm. is that they're 
adjusting their portfolios uh, to look at these companies that may be bringing their money back, et cetera, we don't yet know whether that money uh, can be used directly for share repurchases, uh, for M&A activity, or, as many of the Democrats have suggested, there should be some link between repatriation and reinvestment uh-huh. of that money in the United States for things like CapEx and job creation. Uh, and, Abby, it sounds like from, from what you're describing there, there is, there is no shortage of, of uncertainty. And I wonder what you make of the, the market reaction sort of in the immediate aftermath of, of the election. We saw a lot of investors betting on the prospects of, of stimulus here, betting on the prospect of investment in infrastructure, say. Uh, have have, have uh, calmer minds prevailed? Have cl- uh, clearer minds prevailed? Have things calmed out a bit? Well, let me put it in uh, two different phases, if I may. Um, If we hearken back to some of the conversations that I've had uh, with you and Tom and and others um, over the last several months, uh, the point I was making is that based upon the dynamic of the U.S. economy, the sort of profit generation, the job creation that we were seeing and so on, S&P 500 at 2200 was the right number. Uh, in my view, for the end of 2016. So that's where we are, Um, number one. Number two, the other point that I made uh, very strongly is that I thought that interest rates have been way too low. Mm. Uh, And so we have, in fact, seen a notable rise in rates, but they're still below what our fixed income teams might consider to be fair value. Um, And so we do think the Fed will be uh, raising rates here uh, in December. We think there will be some ongoing moves. Yes, that's the so-called policy rates, but we have already seen intermediate and long yields move higher with a 10-year at about a 2.4%. We think in the coming months, uh, we ought to be seeing it something like 2.7. So to get back to your question, much of what has happened in the markets since the election have been consistent with an underlying economy that is growing, uh, that seems to have very good legs, is stable, um, is generating good corporate profits and so on. If we turn our attention to the stock selection, uh, what we see uh, is that we've already moved into a different phase. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first phase of the post-election rally had to do with infrastructure companies, those that would benefit from it, uh, those that might benefit from a change in the regulatory environment and so on. And now we've seen a real move towards what my colleagues are referring to as the reflation trade, Uh Uh, basically the economy doing well, inflation beginning to move up, prices rising, wages moving up. By the way, wages moving up is a good thing, not a bad thing. Um, And so we are seeing a shift into some of the more cyclical aspects of the stock market. When you look at um, the degree which the next leg of this is going to be earnings-driven, what do you see and what's the catalyst going to be for that? Um, If we just do the straight analysis of earnings-driven and so on, it looks okay. Um, And and so the S&P forecasts for 2017, uh, our team is showing an increase of about 10%. Um, The consensus is a little bit higher, something like 12 or 13%. So there seems to be good earnings support for still higher stock prices. And that may, in fact, continue to drive the stock market 
until we see what the actual policies will be uh, from the new administration. Uh, fiscal policy, we're expecting stimulus, yes, but it's also important to look at things like trade policy. Um, one thing that I can't stress enough is the following. Over the last decade, the U.S. economy, using GDP, mm. has grown per annum about 2%. The single fastest growing sector of our economy has been trade, where the annual growth rate has been about 6%. If, in fact, we are moving into more of a protectionist era, that's not so good, if you will, for U.S. companies that have been doing very well by exporting, producing things here, selling them abroad. It is one of the truly most elegant redone. Rarely, David Gurra, can you take a classic restaurant in the classic hotel and not screw it up. They did that here at the Pierre Hotel with Perrine. It We're, is beautiful. It is. Uh, here for the Power it's Breakfast peaceful. this morning. Peaceful. I don't think I can afford an orange juice. (laughs) Another uh, water for Tom, please. It is the Power Breakfast at the Pier Hotel. This is the hotel where Elizabeth Taylor lived, among other uh, worthies. Yves Saint Laurent lived here for years. And at the very top of the hotel was ensconced one of the most important people in American investment and finance, the late Martin Zweig. He uh-huh. held court here on investment and is our esteemed guest, who's Abby Joseph Cohen. It is wonderful to speak to you from Marty Zweig's abode. As you know, uh, Marty Zweig always said, don't fight the Fed. We can't fight Janet Yellen right now, so what do we do? Marty Zweig also loved sitting wearing baseball attire. Um, something that I think many people uh, don't know is that he was an avid fan um, and always had his baseball cap with him. Uh, but, but let's get back to business, shall we? Um, what, what shall we talk about, Tom? Well, I think the Fed. I think the idea of, of Mr. Zweig's acclaimed comment, don't fight the Fed. This is a Fed in motion, isn't it? This is a Fed in motion, but for good reason. Um, Our economy, in my view, and the view of many others, no longer requires as much monetary stimulus. Obviously, they've been withdrawing the QE. They've begun to raise interest rates, and we think more increases will be coming. Uh, The fact that intermediate and long yields have already moved up, I think, is a reflection not just that investors are expecting the Fed to move, but the Fed probably should. This is an economy that is growing in this quarter Mm -hmm. 2.5% to 3%. Maybe that's goosed a little bit by inventory accumulation, but an economy that's been growing, let's call it about 2 2.5%, generating lots of jobs, wages have begun to rise, many prices have begun to rise. It's time right. uh, for interest rates to move up. And by the way, when they do, interest rates will still be low. Uh, well, we to... are at record low levels. If they move up somewhat, we don't think it's going right. to deter economic activity. It's partial differential Thursday, so let's do that right now, <laughs> Abby. If we get the raise, if we get the Fed in action, if we get the president-elect in action, is it an increase in inflation outrunning an inf- increase in real growth, or can we get the best of all worlds? I believe initially we will have growth that people focus on, the inflation will come later. Uh, The sort of increases we're seeing in wages and so on now, in my view, not particularly inflationary, because it's coming after a period in which wages in many categories were stagnant. 
good wage growth is good for middle-class consumption, obviously the number one largest sector of the U.S. economy. The inflation, I believe, uh, always comes later uh, when we begin to see that there are capacity constraints um, in the labor markets, um, in the production capacity um, uh, of the U.S. economy, and so on. We haven't seen it, but there's something else uh, that I think will be pushing inflation up somewhat, and that is commodity prices. Um, we have benefited for quite a while now from low energy prices. Uh, that has uh, really pushed down headline CPI. Uh, core CPI um, never really got quite that low. Core CPI has begun to rise, and the headline inflation, of course, will reflect uh, the increases, not just in energy prices, but ultimately some of the other commodities that we're seeing move higher. Abby Joseph Cohn, we have about a minute left, and, and uh, we'll have to get you to join us here next time. You can you can bring a baseball cap if, if you like, but let me ask you about... And, and the, I the, want one of those orange juices. There you go. They're, very, they're delicious. Uh, we, we look at the dollar here. Bloomberg Dollar Spot Index slightly weaker this morning at 99.93, but but the the tail of the strong dollar has been uh, the overarching narrative here for a while. How long do you expect that that story to continue here, uh, and do you expect this administration to pursue a, a similar strong dollar policy? A dollar story or any currency story is always a relative story. And we tend to focus as Americans on what we're doing that is pushing the dollar up. Let's keep in mind that Europe is not looking all that robust. Other parts of the world are not looking all that robust. And that is contributing to the idea of dollar as reserve currency, safe haven, uh, and, and so on. Um, we think the dollar will continue to rise relative to the euro, relative to some of these other currencies. But on a percentage basis, we've probably seen uh, a good deal of the move already. Keep in mind that all other things being mm -hmm. equal, this is not great for <clears throat> economic growth. If the, as the dollar rises, um, our exports become less competitively priced. Right. The most recent trade data showed well, that there was some problem there. Abby, thank you so much. Ms. Cohen appears this morning, courtesy of Nicholas Backstrom of the Washington Capitol, <laughs> as they took it to the Bruins uh, last night. We will continue from the Pierre Hotel, the Power Breakfast at the Pierre. This is Bloomberg. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Uh, it is a wonderful day of celebration for Bloomberg Surveillance. My book of the year is Ken Rogoff's The Curse of Cash, which is an exceptionally brave book. And the first book has advanced uh, in, uh, into 2017 with The Undoing Project. And if I didn't tell you who the author was, you'd say, okay, Tom, I trust yeah. you. I'm going to read The Undoing Project. But we're going to do the big long here and mention that this is the new effort by one Michael Lewis. Michael, good morning. Good morning, Tom. Congratulations, you've done it again. No one would ever think you would take within the trade Kahneman and Tversky and put it into the poetry that you've done with the Undoing Project. Um, David Gurr has got a million questions as do I, but I wanna go to the heart of the matter 
which is how did you take the challenges and complexity of game theory, psychology, and really obtuse mathematics and bring it as accessibly as you did to the Undoing Project? How'd you write the book? Um, the key to the whole thing was the love story between the two men. Uh-huh. And, the, and the, the, that, was the, that was the big key, that, it, it, that the relationship was so emotionally charged and interesting and the characters were so interesting that I, that I figured that, that once you hooked with yeah. a reader with the characters in that story, they'd follow, they'd follow you anywhere. And David, jump in here, but I, I really want to say that this is the one... Michael Lewis book where you can see the movie as you read there the you book. <laughs> and I never thought <laughs> I'd say that one, about sure. Common and Tversky. But, I mean, this is the sequel to The Big Short. You can literally see the damn movie. The book is so lively. Michael, talk a bit more about that relationship, these two professors working together. Uh, more than just a, a professional relationship, they were very close friends. More than just an academic relationship yes. because they were these Israelis who were on and off the battlefield every six years. You know, I mean, they were dragged into the real world in a way that academics seldom are and had huge influences on the real world, like reshaping the Israeli military. Uh, and the, the relationship struck everybody around them as bizarre because they were seen as opposites. I mean, it was a Felix and Oscar relationship. Uh-huh. And uh, they were, it was, it was a, and what it was, I think what was so exciting to the two of them is that they found, they were different with each other than they were with anybody else. They got into a room and they became different people. And uh, uh, they brought out they brought out stuff in each other's minds that didn't didn't come out except when they were with each other. I mean, it was it's, if you look at their work, what what Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman did together is so different from anything either one of them did alone. Uh, it's it's like a, I don't know. It's like two people who can kind of sing, but when they get together, it sounds beautiful. Uh, so the the the. Um, that was part. That was part of what interested me is that you had this collaboration that was just genuinely a cl- collaboration. You couldn't untangle the one from the other, and the, the tragedy of the thing was that the world kind of wouldn't let that let, let that be. That they really wanted to know who did what and assign credit and all that, and it, 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 it tore at the relationship. Michael Lewis, uh, they of course were pathbreakers in the field of behavioral economics. For those who don't know it. Give us the definition. What is behavioral economics? Well, so it's funny you say that because, yes, in a way, they they gave birth to behavioral economics uh-huh. without even thinking they were. that's what they were doing. I mean, it was like with a flick of the wrist because the, the, their work in sort of exploring how the human mind deals with uncertainty and makes judgments and decisions uh, was firmly within you know, psychology. And it bleeds out in all kinds of ways when they show that people are make systematic errors and... It, and behavioral economics is taking, essentially taking on board, it, it's a funny name for it, because what behavioral economics is, is psychology. <laughs> it's, 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 taking, it's taking insights from psychology and trying to pl- play, out, play with their implications in, in, in the economy. I think of, of behavioral economics and how easily applied it is to, to sports. I think of your, your previous work, Tom brought up Moneyball. Uh, were these two guys sports fans, did they see those applications when they were doing their work? Amos Tversky, very much so. Danny, Danny Kahneman didn't have much interest in sports. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but Amos Tversky uh, actually, he, he was doing Moneyball-like <clears throat> stuff uh, 
way back in the 80s. He yeah. was writing papers about uh, the myth of the hot hand in basketball, mm-hmm. where that, that, that right. he showed that streak shooting was not actually mm-hmm. streak shooting, that it was perfectly explainable as a, 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 a kind of ra- part of a random right. pattern. Uh, but they, they, the, more, the more direct connection with the whole Moneyball stuff is that, that they... They sort of exp- their work explains, you know, why baseball scouts misjudge baseball players. Yeah. They explain what's going on in the minds of people who are yeah. evaluating other people for any kind of job. And so, oddly, when I got into this, I, what I really thought of it is this kind of the prequel or origin story for Moneyball. I loved how you framed at the beginning, Michael Lewis, how you were getting massive acclaim for Moneyball even before Brad Pitt was cast in the movie. And, and there were these two upstarts out of Chicago who said, ah, Michael, maybe it's not an original book. <laughs> it, was, that, I could, it was absolutely <laughs> shocking to me that I had written this entire book about the way this baseball team had found players who were misvalued. And, and talked about things like biases. I mean, they, they were, they, behavioral economics had infiltrated the Oakland A's front office. And so Kahneman and Tversky had via yeah. behavioral economics, and that I didn't know about it. Yeah. And that there, was, that, there, that there was this early story. I didn't know that it was going to be a book, but I just right. thought, how did I miss that? Yeah. Michael, uh, you, you end the book with the tragedy for all of us that love economics. I think of the death of Rudiger Dornbush of MIT as the only equivalent. The sadness of Amos Tversky dying. Describe for us what Mr. Tversky meant for Mr. Kahneman and all of a certain generation of economics. He, he, he really was maybe the most uh, vivid, uh, pungent mind of his time in that Everybody who knew him couldn't get him out of his head, their heads. There's, uh, he, he, um, people who worked with him for the rest of their lives, whenever they would face some problem, would always ask themselves, what would Amos say? Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard Nisbet, the psychology at Mich- Michigan, designed a one-line intelligence test, and it was um, the longer it takes you after you've met Amos to figure out that Amos is smarter than you, the stupider you are. Right. He was, and nobody disputed it. His mind was just, had this agility and this ability to move to levels of abstraction very quickly that you don't find in any field. Uh, I mean, my favorite Amos story is that he he was invited to a, a party filled with some of the world's greatest physicists, and just kind of by accident. And nobody knew who he was because he was a psychologist. And after the party, one of the young physicists called the host and said, who was that physicist I was talking to? <laughs> and they said, and, and he said, they couldn't figure out who he was talking about. He says, and they said, and they finally realized, oh, no, no, he wasn't a physicist. That was Amos Tversky. He's a psychologist. And the young physicist said, he's the smartest physicist I've ever met. <laughs> and and, and they, so this guy, he was, he was Superman. Uh, and uh, and really pe- a really peculiar personality, and not a self-consciously smarty pants guy. He was a warrior. He was a, he was a war hero. He was a, he was raised in Israel to be a Spartan. Um, and in any case, he was the most alive person anybody knew. And his early death, it, it struck everybody as just like totally improbable that Amos is dead. 
And one of the things I noticed in working on the book is that people have kept him alive. They keep him alive in his memory. Yes, but that's very true. That's so true. He, he, they, they don't yeah. they refuse. His filing cabinets yeah. from 20 years ago that he had outside his office at Stanford University are still in the hallway at Stanford University. David Gurr, what Michael Lewis just said there is that's the smartest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> that, that's so true and is true of Rudy Dornbush and Amos Tversky. We, people just keep them alive. Yeah. They, they need them. They yeah. still need them. Uh, and so they find ways to keep them alive. And, and I think, you know, it's funny, I think my book is part of that effort. That I think the, the people who enabled my book and made it possible for me to write right. it, a big motive well, was keeping Amos alive. We're going to continue this discussion on Bloomberg Television. Michael Lewis uh, with us today on Bloomberg Radio. And I'll be blunt, folks. I'm, I'm still waiting through the end of the year books. I'm going to be right out front. This is the read for 2017. Michael Lewis, The Undoing Project, the accessibility, including the opening chapter on the NBA, is shocking what he has done to what we all study, which is Kahneman and Tversky. The Undoing Project, a friendship that changed our minds. Michael Lewis. It's rare that we speak to a CEO that I can say not only changed an industry, changed his company and all that, but maybe changed America. He's out of the University of Texas, Austin. He is. He bleeds Southwest, Southwest Air love. Gary Kelly joins us right now. Gary, good morning. Um, I, I think, Gary, the, the thing I would notice is the great Southwest Air tradition that all babies born on the airplane are named Gary Kelly, right? <laughs> what, what's it like when you get an email that a, a child has been born on one of your airplanes? Well, um, you know, the first, obviously, the first reaction is I hope all went well. And, sure. And, uh, you know, we diverted that flight to uh, make sure that mother and baby were safe. And, and the baby was a little premature, so uh, I think everybody ah. was concerned. But I, I, the last report I had is that uh, everybody's doing well. But, yeah, it's, it, uh, yeah, it's interesting. We have uh, over 50,000 employees at Southwest. We serve 120 million customers a year. We're the largest airline in America. And uh, things happen yeah. every day, you know. So it's just a part of uh, being a part of society. That's nicely put. And within the 50-year tradition, the 45-year tradition of Southwest Air, I know the no layoff angle in that. You've had a 2016 of not labor war, but real back and forth with your employees. I know there's been recent settlements. Are you going to have more of this into next year? And is, is this the new reality for airlines, is battles between fancy executives and their labor? Is this where we're heading? Well, good question. I think that, um, you know, I don't know about the rest of the industry. I would just talk about Southwest with, with my comments. Um, we view Southwest as a family. And uh, families have disagreements. That's not new uh, in 2016. Labor negotiations are always vigorous. Um, I'm glad that we're able to take care of our people, pay them extraordinarily well. Uh, you made the point we've never had a furlough in our history. Mm -hmm. uh, I love our people. We want to do the best job that we can to uh, take care of them. So. Um, uh, we're a family, and uh, we yeah. love each other, and uh, we'll, we'll continue, I think, to serve our customers very well, and that's the most important thing here. IATA, out with a report, we spoke to them in Europe earlier on Bloomberg Surveillance, clearly showing the profitability of America versus the foreign airlines. 
are we going to see finally the foreign airlines come more into ownership and activity in North America and the U.S., or is that something that waits for another day? How do you see the the framework of ownership uh, uh, over the next three to four years? Uh, you know, there doesn't seem to be re- any real energy behind making a change there, and, uh, you know, we have tremendous air service in the United States. We have very, very vigorous competition. Um, it just it begs the question of what problem are we trying to solve with that? Um, yeah. Uh, so I don't see uh, a need to change there. And um, on, on the other hand, there have been um, a lot of challenges in terms of uh, re-regulating the airline industry, and my hope is that uh, that will abate, and that's where our fo- focus is going to be over the next several years with the new administration. Gary Kelly uh, with Southwest Air joining us this morning. Um, I, I, I look at the state of the industry, and certainly when we speak to the sell side, they inform us of more persistent cash flows. The last decade, Southwest Air, 12% a year return, much of that coming in the recent um, years. Do you work day-to-day with your strategy and with your planning for next year, assuming a more responsible industry that will lead to persistent cash flows, or are you guys going to make the same mistakes you made for the last 30, 40 years in expansion? Well, you know, I'm not going to uh, uh, assume all the mistakes that our competitors made. You know, I started at Southwest 30 years ago. Every single major airline that was in existence in 1986 is either gone or gone bankrupt. And to be clear, you've never gone bankrupt. Absolutely let's, let's, not. Let's say that for Absolutely the Absolutely not. So every single one, and uh, we haven't made those mistakes is the point. Southwest has been great service, low cost. Uh, low fares, and we've taken great care of our people, and that's uh, served us very, very well. So uh, what the rest of the industry will do prospectively, I don't know. I will say that the environment, in my opinion, has never been more competitive than it is right now. We've never had stronger competitors financially than we have right now, so the industry is definitely different, and whether that will continue, that'll be up to our competitors. Obviously, our job is to beat them. How do you meet that competition? I meant name the airport DFW. I'll let you decide which airport within the Southwest uh, span. I'm at that airport. I'm an hour behind. Maybe if we pull back from the runway, I'm three hours behind. That upsets people. The luggage upsets people. The pretzels upset people. How, what's the distinctive feature of that new competition? Well, I, I think that you're hitting on it. Uh, the competition is uh, better across the board. Uh, mm-hmm. On-time performance is better. Uh, baggage handling is better. There are fewer uh, customer complaints uh, with the DOT, uh, with our competitors. Uh, the uh, costs are relatively lower than they were mm-hmm. uh, historically, and the fares are more competitive. So just it's the the full gamut uh, of the ways that we touch customers. Uh, every airline is is just better. It makes us, if we're going to compete, we have to continue to get better also. And I would quickly add that Southwest has never been better. We're stronger today than at any point in time in our 45-year history. And we'll continue to invest in our customer experience and work really hard to keep our costs low so our fares can stay low. I don't know if you know this, but only this could happen on Southwest Airlines. Uh, Brian Kelly, the points guy, his latest article is on Southwest passengers nailing the mannequin challenge. 
they froze the whole plane so they could do the mannequin challenge photograph that everybody's doing now. Brian Kelly's changed the business with these points. Are charge cards and points and all of us getting a million miles, is that Gary Kelly's nightmare or your best friend? Oh, no, we're very intentional. Um, We have a great relationship with uh, Chase. Uh, our, our Visa credit card, uh, if, if you don't have it in your wallet, you're really missing out because it is <laughs> the most, gener- Shameless the most, plug. most ge- uh, generous uh, frequent flyer program out there. And it's, it's just an element of our customer experience and the customer relationship. Yeah. And we have very strong profits, so obviously we're able yeah. to do all that in a way right. that it rewards the company and our customers. Gary Kelly, I've got a race next time on board of Southwest Air, twins being born. Gary Kelly <laughs> is the chief executive officer of Southwest Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.